Well, Merry Christmas, everybody. God bless you. It's kind of, I love celebrating Christmas, but I'll be honest with you, I love celebrating it all year long. And, uh, and I love celebrating Christmas all the days of my life. You know, we all got a story, and uh, we knew what life was like without King Jesus. We knew what it was like to be on our own, to be lost, and we could lie to the world and pretend to be cool, but then we go to sleep at night and we weep on our pillow because we know something's missing. Well, praise God if you found the true meaning of Christmas. Praise God if you found Jesus, and uh, let's just worship him all the days of our lives, and let's every day be Christmas, every day be Easter. And uh, we'll live every day with Jesus. Let's uh, open up to John chapter 1. We looked at last week the, uh, the biological explanation, how was Jesus born? Well, he was born of a virgin through the power of the Holy Spirit, the Virgin Mary. And uh, we looked at the historical account and Jesus being born in a manger and the shepherds being there. And now we're going to look at the theological explanation. So if... Uh, We'll go to the Lord for a word of prayer. Father, in Jesus' precious name, I just pray, Lord, that uh, I think that the people who are here today, I think I know most of them, and they're here because for the real reason of Christmas. They're here because we know that God the Son became a man to die for us, to save us from our sins, to conquer death for us. But uh, there's many people in our community that don't know what Christmas is all about. And so can we help them see past the exchange of gifts and the materialism and the running to and fro and the shopping and all the craziness and the warmth of families getting together? May they, they gather not just around the, in a warm house or a nice fireplace, but may they gather in the midst of the warmth of your love. Because you loved us so much that you sent your son to be a sacrifice for us. So may we not only focus on the true meaning of Christmas, may we proclaim it to others as well. And today as we look at the, the deep biblical truths of the incarnation, God the Son becoming a man, I pray, Lord, that... Uh, you would give me proper understanding of the biblical text, that you would anoint me to proclaim your truth and fill me with your spirit so I would not lead anyone astray. Please, Lord, open hearts and minds to receive your truth, to understand your truth, and to apply your truth. And may we live for your son, the Lord Jesus and not for ourselves. May we build his kingdom and not our own until that day when he takes his stand upon the earth to make things right. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. amen. Okay, so the Gospel of John, chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 18. John, chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. And... Uh, I titled this message, The Word Became Flesh. The Word Became Flesh. And, uh, you know, you can go through difficult times. You can get battered and beaten and stressed out. And maybe you don't know where your next mortgage payment is coming from. 
Maybe you don't know where your next meal is coming from. Maybe you feel like you've been forsaken by your friends and your loved ones. Uh, but one thing I can tell you, I can't tell you, I can't always tell you I know what you're going through because I've lived a pretty sheltered life, I think. And, um, but one thing I can tell you is the word became flesh. And so no matter how bad things get, no matter how battered and beaten you feel, you just got to remember God became a man for you and for me. And everything's going to be all right. Everything's going to be okay because King Jesus became one of us. He felt our pain. He knows what it's like to be forsaken. He knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like to die alone. But he also knows what it's like to conquer the grave. And he conquered that grave, not just for himself, but for us. He defeated man's greatest enemy, death. So let's see what the, the theological explanation from God's word um, uh, about the incarnation. And so look at the first three verses there of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1. In the beginning, now right there, when John says in the beginning, he's saying this, in, in Greek, you know, but the people he's writing this letter to, they knew enough about the Old Testament to know that, man, he's repeating the, the, the first, you know, the, the different amount of words in the Greek and the Hebrew, but, but he's, he's, re, he's quoting from the beginning of the Bible, in the beginning. So that's like before anything was created. I'm not using philosophically precise language right now, but... Before anything was created, the word already was, okay? In the beginning, you know, Genesis 1-1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He's going to take, John's going to take a lot of themes. In the beginning, then God created. He's going to talk about all things are made through Christ. He's going to talk about um, light and darkness and all these themes are found. And in the word, God said, let there be light, the spoken word of God. So in the beginning was the word. The word for word in the Greek is logos. We'll talk about that. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, so he's not created. He was already there in the beginning. Before anything was created, he was already there, and he was with God. The word in the Greek basically means he was there face-to-face -face with God. He was there fellowshipping with God, yet the word was God. And only the doctrine of the Trinity could explain that, how God could be more than one person, how Jesus could be God, yet be with God. And both statements would be true. At our Bible study on Wednesday night, we went over the Greek of it and broke it down and showed how technical it is and, um, and why so many, you, the, the last phrase, if you tr translate that incorrectly, um, put it in the wrong order, you could teach um, uh, heresy 
And, uh, but in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. So the Jehovah's Witness idea that Jesus was the first thing that God the, the Father created, and then Jesus created everything else, that's baloney. Jesus is not, there's the things that were made and that which was not made. And that which was not made was the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus is not one of the things that was made. And so in the beginning was the Word. Now we're going to see later on that the Word became flesh, became one of us. So this is talking about uh, a person, okay? In the beginning before anything was created, was this person, the Word, and the Word was with God, face-to-face -face with God, and the Word was God, okay? And he was in the beginning with God. So first thing we note there is that uh, the Word is eternal. He was already there in the beginning. Uh, the Word is eternal, uh, Jesus has no beginning, no end. We're going to see that the, the word is going to even be named. Not only the word became flesh, but then the word is going to be named in verse 17, Jesus Christ. And, um, and so it becomes very, very clear that Jesus existed in the beginning with God and was God. He was already there in the beginning, and he is the creator. All things that came into existence came into existence through him. So you have eternal, infinite existence sharing the divine being, the divine nature, only one God. God is one being, but somehow God is three distinct centers of consciousness, three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus is God, the second person of the Trinity. Jesus is uh, uh, the creator. He is eternal. He was already there in the beginning he existed with the Father, and he is equally God with the Father. That And the word was God tells us that everything that you, in the Greek, everything you have to have to be God, the word has. Okay? So it's like, you know, you could say uh, Phil Fernandez was human. By nature, I'm human. I have everything you have to have to be human. You realize if I lost my leg, I'd still be human. You don't have to have two legs to be human. But whatever you have to have to be human, I got it, okay? Well, by saying that the word was God, what that tells us, especially in the Greek, it makes it very clear, everything that Jesus had to have, everything that the word had to have to be God, he had, okay? And so he is equally God with the Father. Now, the Holy Spirit isn't spoken about right here, but we find other passages where we find out that there's three persons of the Trinity. The three divine persons share the one divine being. They share, so there, it's one what, one God, but three who's, three distinct persons, okay? And, um, and so Jesus is eternal. He was already there in the beginning. He is the creator. He existed with and had fellowship with the Father, and uh, he is equally God uh, with the Father. Now, uh, now the, the key is, why would John pick the word logos? Probably two reasons. Because in the Old Testament scriptures, you know, where God says in Genesis 1, 
and, and God said, let there be light. And there was like God just spoke it into existence. You see that in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. But even in the Old Testament, it talks about God speaking things into existence. Okay? It's kind of like God has knowledge of all possible realities, all possibilities. That's God's thinking. He knows every, every possible thing he knows. But to actualize those possibilities... God speaks it into existence, okay? Now, there's a bunch of heretics who talk about us speaking things into existence, and that's just not plain uh, biblical, okay? We're not, we're not God, okay? We don't create our own reality. God alone creates reality. We live in his reality. We have choices that we make, but we are not <clears throat> co-creators with God, Um and so, <clears throat> um, I forgot my water, so I don't know if there's a way to, to grab my water over there. But, uh, uh, but whatever the case, John probably focused on the, um, thanks a lot, Wills. John focused on the Logos. Probably the primary reason was the, because the Jewish emphasis on God's word and creation, speaking things into creation. At the same time, many of the Jews, especially a guy named, a philosopher named Philo, was very influenced in Platonic, Plato's philosophy. And they were headquartered out of Alexandria, Egypt, and that was like the new Athens. When Paul preached on Mars Hill in, in Athens, in um, the book of Acts, chapter 17, Athens was already kind of a has-been kind of place, okay? And, um, and now the, the headquarters of Western philosophical thought, brilliant guys trying to find wisdom through their own strength, but not having the knowledge of the truths that God has revealed in Scripture, Alexandria became the new headquarters. And there was a Jewish guy, Philo, there, and he was into an ancient Greek doctrine called the Logos Doctrine. And I'm sure that John, as a very intelligent Jew, by the way, for these 18 verses that we're reading, it's poetic, it's philosophical, it's theological. You've got to be brilliant to write it. So the little teenage guy, John, that hung out with King Jesus by this time, the guy's a brilliant thinker. Okay? And so he probably knew about the Logos. Well, the problem with the ancient Greeks was they could do science like Aristotle believed in a real physical world and the basic reliability of the sense, per sense perception. The problem was, though, it's kind of like, yeah, but how do we know our senses are really telling us that the world is the way it is? And so they, they kind of, um, you know, you ended up with a philosopher who rejected revelation from God named Immanuel Kant. And the best that human thought could do is we could know reality as it appears to us but we can never be sure that it's reality as it is, okay? And the ancient Greeks kind of had that problem. It's like, well, what if our reason and our senses don't really work? And so they just arbitrarily came up with this Logos doctrine. Maybe there's this non-personal mind. Now, I don't know how a mind could be non-personal. Maybe there's this non-personal mind, kind of a force, like electricity type of thing, but maybe there's this non-personal mind that enlightens our minds so that we can know the truth 
and takes the, the, the world of change, the changing world, the changing physical world, and makes sense of it, okay? And so they just invented this Logos doctrine. So John is saying, you know, the Greeks are right. There is the Logos that makes sense, kind of designs the world, makes sense of the world, and then enlightens our minds to know the truth. They're right about that. They're just wrong thinking the Logos is a non-personal entity. The Logos is the word. It is God, the second person of the Trinity. And then John's going to tell the Greeks uh, and the Jews and anyone who wants to hear it that the Logos uh, has become, is God and the Logos has become a man. So John has this theme of the, the Logos that enlightens every man. Uh, now, verses 4 and 5, in him... In the word was life, and the life was the light of men. A lot of people might say, I don't know if I believe that. What do you you believe, evolution? That life just evolved from non-life without intelligent intervention? You know how much new complex information is needed for that? A single-celled animal contains uh, 20,000 volumes of encyclopedia worth of information. That's just a single-celled animal the most primitive life form that we could find. By the way, the Bible doesn't even classify that as life. The Bible nowhere calls plant life life. So when the Bible's talking about life, it's talking a really complex stage of life where you have to have a soul that enables you to uh, be conscious of yourself and the physical world around you and others. Even dogs have that. A lot of people don't realize that Many Christian philosophers like uh, Thomas Aquinas acknowledge that animals have souls. Now, animals have souls just to function in the physical world. Humans have souls to function in the physical world, but also the spiritual world. And so the purpose of our souls goes beyond that, of this little uh, physical visit to planet Earth. And, uh, but in him was life. I mean, you're not going to, I don't care if you got billions of years, from a mound of dirt and a little bit of water, you're never going to get something living coming out of that, okay? Evolution's got all these unproven assumptions that everything came into existence from nothing, totally without a cause. No, nothing is nothing, nothing can do nothing, nothing can cause nothing. The universe had a beginning, something outside the universe had a cause it to come into existence. And since the universe, all the natural causes are in the universe, In nature, the cause by definition has to be a supernatural cause. So there has to be a supernatural cause for the universe. And John's talking about that. It's the word. God, the second person of the Trinity. But evolution is something from nothing without a cause. Life from non-life. Multi-celled animals from single-celled animals. Animals uh, um, uh, without backbones to animals with backbones. These are all unproven assumptions. The common ancestry of fish, reptiles, birds, mammals, it's all assumptions that they make. They have never proven evolution. They assume all the major jumps. All they've proven are gradual changes within uh, biblical kinds. So, yeah, big difference between a Chihuahua and a Great Dane, but they're the same kind. A lot of variation. 
And, uh, but in him was life. Where did life come from? It came from God. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend him. So Jesus is eternal. He is God. He's creator. And Jesus is life. And then he gives us not only life, our existence, but he also gives us light. And whenever you see light in the scriptures, okay, it's always, you know, you try to figure out, what are they talking about? God is light. What, are they, what is this, you know? Always bounce it off of darkness, okay? It's like, if we turn off all the lights in here and it got dark outside and you had to walk around, you'd be bumping into chairs and bumping into the steps and bumping into walls because you would be ignorant. You would be ignorant of your surroundings. Then if you found the lights and turned on the light, then you would have the knowledge. You would no longer be ignorant. You would have the knowledge of uh, your surroundings. So sometimes the darkness is the darkness of ignorance. And so light there means spiritual truth. Jesus gives us spiritual enlightenment, okay? Um, I also think that it's clear that using the word logos, John's implying that Jesus is also the one who turns on the light physically. That you wouldn't even be able to, to know that you're sitting on a chair if it wasn't for Jesus creating you in such a way so that you could know those things. That's why the psalmist said, in his light, in God's light, we see light. It's like C.S. Lewis said, the S-O-N, the sun, is a lot like the S-U-N, the sun. In that we not only see the S-U-N by its own light, but through the light of the sun, we see everything else. It's the same with Jesus as the sun, the one who enlightens every man. Not only do we see Jesus through his light, but we see everything else through his light, whether we realize that or not. And uh, so it's amazing that man uses the light God has given him to argue against God. You know, really, really makes no sense. And that's why the Bible says, if any man says in his heart there is no God, he is a fool. The fool says in his heart there is no God. Psalm 14.1. But Jesus gives light, spiritual enlightenment. Sometimes the darkness is symbolic of sin. And so Jesus, as the light of the world, gives us spiritual purity. Okay? We need to walk in the light. We claim to be followers of Jesus, but do we walk in the light? Or do we walk around in the darkness of sin? The darkness of spiritual uh, ignorance. And so Jesus gives us light. Now it talks a little bit here, verses 6 to 8, about a guy who wasn't the light, John the Baptist. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. Okay? Now let me tell you, most... Most of our pastors and most of our professors argue that John was writing this around 85 to 90 A.D. And Jesus was crucified around 30 A.D., so about 60 years later. 
I don't really agree with that. I mean, there's a passage talking about in John chapter 5, talking about places in Jerusalem and the temple grounds that were still standing. So that had to be before 70 AD. They even, our, our, our pastors have to say, have to accept what their professors taught them, say, well, maybe he was using present tense for past events, and maybe that was a style of the ancients. It's like, why are you making this stuff up, guys? Let's just go, go with what the early church fathers told us. And that's why in my hijack in the historical Jesus book, I argue for an early to mid-50s A.D. date for the Gospel of John. I don't think there were guys walking around in 90 A.D. who still thought maybe John the Baptist was the Messiah. Why does he have to remind people? Yeah, now John came to witness of the light, but he never claimed to be the light. He pointed people to Jesus. Do you really got to remind people that, of that in 85 to 90 A.D.? No, now Paul would run into John's disciples every now and then, like in Ephesus, and I think it's Acts chapter 19, but there you're talking like mid-50s A.D., okay? And um, it took a while for the gospel to spread and for people to understand that John, John kept saying, look, he must increase, Jesus must increase, but I must decrease. And, um, and so John came to witness, to bear witness of the light, that others would believe through him. Why am I here today? To bear witness to the light? Why when you leave here today, or maybe even before you leave here today, God may call you to bear witness to the light. Uh, when God saves us, why not just snatch us up to heaven? Because he wants us to stick around planet Earth to bear witness to the light. I'm telling you, that's, that's your reason to live, is to bear witness of the, of the light. The whole meaning of life is to personally know Christ and to make him known. So we're all supposed to have a little bit of John the Baptist in us. Some of us, we preach Jesus in the wilderness. Some, we preach him in the cities. Some, we preach him in the valleys. Some, we preach him on the mountaintops. But if you're one of his, you live to preach Jesus. You live to bear witness of the light. You know, and I, you know, I've been doing this. I got saved in 1981. I've been pastoring now for almost 36 years. And, um, and I could pat myself on the back. But, yeah, I've gotten insults. I've gotten death threats at some of the debates that I took. I had to have armed security or police officers there. But overall, people pat you on the back and say good sermon or they say amen when you preach. But... Um, Am I going to bear witness to the light when persecution comes? You know? I mean, like, I'm a, I'm a quote-unquote military vet. Honorable discharge, did three years, United States Marine Corps. Trained for combat. Never saw any action. And, um, and so I have a lot of respect for the military vets who did see action. And when I, when I talk to them, I tell them, you know, I was just during peacetime. Reagan got elected while I was in boot camp, so I told Khomeini, coughed up the hostages, so nobody wanted to mess with us. The Beirut bombing that killed a whole bunch of Marines, that was right after I got out. And um, I was a peacetime Marine. And they tell me, but these guys say, well, you would have done fine. And I tell them, you don't know that. 
I don't know. Until the bullets are flying over your head, you don't know. I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, we bear witness of the light. It's starting to get hot in the kitchen, but it ain't hot yet. Are you going to bear witness of the light when things come down? When all of a sudden, like Christians all over this world, with the exception of America, Europe, little pockets all over this world, um, people are being persecuted for their faith. Look at the Christians in Iran, the underground church in China. And um, are you going to still bear witness to the truth? You know, uh, John the Baptist bared witness to the light. And what did that do? They got him killed. He was a total failure in the eyes of man. But Jesus said of him that there was no man born a woman greater than John the Baptist. And you know what? I don't care what the world thinks. If Bill Gates and Joe Biden and Klaus Schwab, if they think Phil Fernandez is an idiot, I could care less. Okay? Um, uh, Bill Gates wants me eating bug burgers. I don't live to please uh, Bill Gates. I'm going to eat a hamburger and please King Jesus. And I'm going to have that hamburger. It's going to give me strength. So when it gets hot in the kitchen, hopefully, by the grace of God, through God's power, I'll still bear witness of the light, even when it gets hot in the kitchen. And it's, that's my prayer for you as your pastor. Then we get back to the true light, not the one who witnessed to the light, John the Baptist, but the true light there in verse 9, that babe that was born in the manger. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. Tough, tough verse to translate. Some think that what it's saying is that was the true light which gives light to every man, the Logos, okay? And then that true light came into the world, was coming into the world. Others would say that he gives, he gives light to every man coming into the world. Uh, either way, it's pretty much the same thing, but I tend to think that it's, look, the true light, which turns on the light switch and gives us knowledge, gives us spiritual truth, even truth about the physical world. That was the true light, which gives light to every man while he was coming into the world. And so it goes right into verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. Then it says he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. So Jesus is the true light. And he enlightens every man. What the Greeks thought about the Logos. This is why modern science was founded by Bible-believing Christians. Because we didn't need the old Greek arbitrary Logos doctrine. We had the real biblical Logos doctrine. So the founders of modern science, Galileo. How many people tell you Galileo was a Bible-believing Christian? Nobody. They act like it was science against uh, religion. No, all the schools were Christian schools. Galileo was quoting as many verses out of context to support his scientific views as his opponents were quoting verses out of context to support their fallacious scientific views. Okay? It was an intramural debate among Christians. Galileo was a Christian. Pascal, Descartes, Isaac Newton. Okay? Uh, the list goes on and on. Johannes Kepler, all Bible-believing Christians, because they believed 
that a rational God, the Logos, created man in his image so that we're rational beings and created the world in a way that makes sense so that the infinite knower created us as finite knowers so we can really know truth about the world in which we study. That's how modern science got started. We had the confidence that the, the ancient Greeks could not have, and that's why they invented the arbitrary Logos doctrine. John has given us the real Logos doctrine. The light which enlightens every man, the word which enlightens every man came into the world, and guess what? Even though the world was made through him, the world he created didn't even know him. The creator visited his creation and the world slept. I'm so glad that, that God chose to send some angels and said, tell, tell those shepherds. Send those blue-collar, hard-working shepherds. Forget about the politicians. Forget about the wealthy. Forget about the kings. Tell the shepherds and bring them to the manger, the manger, to see that the true light, which gives light to every man, the creator, the word, who created all things, the word became flesh, became one of us, and, uh, and now he has come to his creation, and his creation doesn't even recognize him, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give a little bit of help here through my angels so the shepherds will recognize him, and then they'll start talking to people, letting them know. Messiah has come. Emmanuel. God with us. And, um, but the world, he came into the world, and the world did not recognize Jesus, her creator. And 2,000 years have gone by, most of the world still doesn't recognize Jesus as a creator. Now, it looks really bleak in America. And in Europe, where Christianity is in decline, do you realize the African continent, now I just read some statistics that are saying it's, it's higher than 47%. It's over 50% of Africans now profess faith in Christ. Okay? The African continent is just, all the Asian countries, the gospel is growing in leaps and bounds. Central and South American countries, um, I think, I think it's safe to say that probably eight to nine out of every ten Bible-believing Christians on planet Earth is not from the West, not from America or Europe. And uh, now when America and Europe go down and turn on the gospel, uh, there is no place on Earth for Jesus or his people. Talk about no room in the inn. We have no room on planet Earth. The whole planet is going to be a prison for Christians. Once America, well, believe me, when America turns, when the American government completely turns on Christianity, um, that's, then Europe, it's going to enable Europe to be what Europe wants to be. Europe wants to be very, very viciously anti-Christian. They're just afraid of what uh, America might not give them money anymore. And... Um, there was no room for Jesus in the end, and there's going to be no room for Jesus on planet Earth real soon. And so you better, you better bear witness of the light now, because when things get really crazy, 
it's going to take a lot of courage and boldness and power of the Holy Spirit to proclaim God's truth. But he came into the world, and the world did not know him. The world did not recognize him. What's even weirder than that is he came to his own in verse 11, and his own did not receive him. Well, if he's talking about the world, that's the Gentiles, the non-Jews. And they didn't recognize him, but, you know, people could say, well, John, how do you expect them to recognize him? They're a bunch of pagans anyway. They're worshiping false gods. How would they know, you know? They could bump into God and not even recognize him. But John said, yeah, but even his own, who should have recognized him, did Okay? They had all the Old Testament prophecies. They had God's Old Testament, the feast days, everything, all pointing to the coming of the Messiah. The Messiah came, and they missed him. We better be very, very careful in our study of God's word, okay? And make sure that we get our doctrines, our teachings from God's word, not the wisdom of man. Uh, the ancient Jews, they, they knew God's word, the Old Testament, upside down, but they were interpreting it. Uh, they were misinterpreting it. And so when Jesus came, his own people missed him. All these prophecies, and they missed it. Now, there were tens of thousands of Jews that got saved, but the theologians, the Jewish religious leaders, they rejected him, even his own. Messiah came to his people. Isaiah predicted that. It's right in the middle of this big prophecy, Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53. And then he says, starts off 53 with, who has believed our message? So he's looking ahead. He's saying, 700 years, Messiah is going to come. You know, the typical, like, Jewish attitude, you know, Italians act certain way, the Jews act It's like, yeah, who's going to believe? I'm proclaiming the truth. I'm telling you, Messiah's coming. He's going to come to his own, but even, not only will the pagans reject him, but even his own did not receive him. You know, John's probably thinking back at this point to the manger. The world's got no room for King Jesus in the end. Oh, God became a man. He's visiting planet Earth. Great. Let's, uh, let's just stick him in a little, uh, little stable for animals and um, let him be born there. But the world had no place for him. Even the Jews had no place for him. Now, that's pretty depressing. But then he gets to verses 12 and 13. But as many as received him, so that implies both Jew and Gentile, there were some that received him. I hope you've received Jesus. I would hate for you on a judgment day to find out you're not a follower of Christ and you wasted your time here one Sunday morning on a Christmas Eve. You even sang songs. Oh, come, let us adore him. And you never took time to adore the creator who became part of his creation and visited this earth. He became a man without ceasing to be God. But as many as received him, if you haven't received Christ yet, please do it today. Please, you don't know. You don't. Every breath you have is dependent upon the will of God. 
okay? You don't know how long you have. Receive Jesus as your Savior. Say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. But you came to earth to die for me, to take my punishment for me, to earn the right for me to go to heaven, something I couldn't earn myself. And by your grace, you provided salvation for me. I'm going to trust in you to save me rather than trust in myself. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. Now, let me say this. We're all children of God by creation. We're all children of God because we're descendants of Adam. Well, guess what? Big deal. That only makes us hellbound. Okay? Adam fell. He passed on a fallen nature to us. So, uh, so I'm real glad saying, hey, look, we're all, we're all children of God by creation. So we need to treat human life with dignity. We need to acknowledge that all of us were created equal in the eyes of God. That we have human rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, we could abuse the freedoms. You know, God instituted government to protect our freedoms. We could abuse those freedoms and make a bad choice. But God gave you the right to pursue happiness. So you make the wrong choices in trying to pursue happiness, and you'll get eternal conscious torment. Okay, um, but whatever the case, um, God created us in his image. So, yeah, we're all children of God by creation, but that only makes us hellbound. Okay? The, the Jews are the chosen nation of God. I love the Jewish people, but I want to see them trust in Jesus for salvation and go to heaven. Because whether it's Jew or Gentile, if you take the Bible seriously as God's word, whether it's Jew or Gentile, unless you trust in Jesus for salvation, you'll be lost forever and ever and ever. Okay? So I hope that you receive him. To those who receive him, those who trust in him for salvation, he gives us the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name who were born not of blood, so he's not talking about a physical birth, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. See, when you trust, I believe trusting in Jesus, God, the Holy Spirit persuades us and draws us, but you have to make that choice. So it's your choice to trust in Jesus, but it's still the will or the choice of God to save those who trust in Jesus. Guess what? Not only did you deserve hell, before you got saved, you still deserve hell right now. You were saved by grace and you're being sustained by grace. It's something you don't deserve. Okay? It took work to get me to heaven. It took work to get you to heaven. It's not our work. Our works are dead works. It was the work of Christ. Okay? The ultimately worthy substitute sacrifice dying on the cross uh, for our sins. Um, and so uh, those who believe in Jesus, those who trust in him for salvation, whether Jew or Gentile, become children of God and we are born again of God. If you're, born, if you're only born once, you're going to die twice. Not only physical death, but eternal spiritual death. 
But if you're born twice, you're probably only going to die once. Just your physical death. But you'll live, if you're born again, through the power of the Holy Spirit, you'll live forever and ever. Um, and now, uh, verse 14, And the Word became flesh, and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us. He pitched his tent among us. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Now keep, keep in mind, Jesus' glory was veiled, so he didn't even look like a king or anything. He was just like a blue-collar carpenter. Nothing much to look at, no majesty, Okay. He veiled his glory, but he unveiled a little bit more of that glory. You know, you can see his glory kind of to a certain degree when he's raising the dead, giving sight to the blind. But when he rose from the dead, you can see he manifested a little bit more of his glory. Problem is, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. If we saw Jesus in all his glory, we'd melt in his presence right now. That's why our bodies, our mortal bodies, must put on immortality at the resurrection when Jesus returns and changes us in the twinkling of an eye, okay, at the last trumpet. And, uh, but John was able to see him before the resurrection and after the resurrection. And he said, the word became flesh. He became one of us. Without ceasing to be God, God the Son became a man. So he's fully God and fully man, okay? But he veiled that glory. It's called the kenosis, the divine emptying. He voluntarily chose not to tap into some of the divine powers that he continued to have while on earth. And he only, the only supernatural power he used, he just depended upon the Father to give him supernatural wisdom and supernatural power to do things through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, once he rises from the dead, all bets are off. Okay? Um, but uh, he did not cease to be God, but he didn't use his divine powers to his advantage. He came here to be a servant. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Yeah, John could say he tabernacled with us. He dwelt among us. And John could say, man, I rested my head on him. God became a man. And I rested my head on his shoulder. We sat down to eat. I cuddled next to God. We broke bread. We had good times together. We had some tough times together. And he trained me and equipped me to be the godly man I am today, says John. But God became a man. The word became flesh. And he dwelt among us. He hung out with us. You know, um... I was watching some videos of an old fighter I used to watch, Guy the Rock Casals, like a Rocky Marciano-type guy from Newark. They made a documentary on his life. and But I can remember when famous boxers would come and visit our gym. And they just like, wow, man, this is really great. This guy was a famous boxer. We're a bunch of bums, and he's hanging out with us. This is really, really cool. Well, guess what? I mean, like, you know, if... Uh, some famous actor or famous politician walked in. You're like, wow, a person came and dwelt with us. Let me tell you, God the Son became a man and dwelt with us. One, one philosopher said if 
What if Socrates or Plato walked in the room? We would all rise. We would all stand out of respect. If Jesus of Nazareth walked in the room, we would all bow. Okay? There's a difference, an infinite difference there. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so Jesus became a man, became one of us, and he came filled with grace, grace to give us unmerited favor, to give us the salvation we don't deserve, okay, and to sustain us by grace. His graces, his blessings are new every morning. But he not only gave us grace, but he also gave us truth. You know, there's that story. I don't even know if it's true, but it's a story they tell about Christmas where the atheist didn't want to go with his wife to the Christmas Eve midnight service. He wanted to stay home. It was snowy and cold outside. It was snowing and... He's in a warm house with the fire, but the birds could see. And they had the big, you know, one of those houses with the almost like a big steeple shape and the big glass windows. And the birds could see that it was warm in there. They could feel the warmth, so they kept trying to fly to the window, through the window, and they'd hit the window and fall down. Some of them dead, some of them just unconscious, and then they'd get back up, and then they'd try to fly. And he just wanted to stop them. And he went outside, and he just waved, and they were still trying to fly in, hitting the window and falling down. And he thought, I wish there was some way I could communicate to them. And he thought, if I could only become a bird and then speak to them in, in their language, and then I could save them. And all of a sudden, it dawned on him. It was the best way for God to communicate with man become one of us. And so the story goes that he went to the midnight service and turned his life over to the Lord Jesus who became one of us. And when he came, he came full of grace and truth. Verse 15 goes back to John the Baptist. John bore witness of him and cried out saying, by the way, why does all the other gospels call John the Baptist, John the Baptist, but the gospel of John just calls him John? Because John never identifies himself by his name, John. So you don't have to get confused about who, which John he's talking about. But all the other Gospels were not written by John. So when they talk about John the Baptist, they got to let you know it's John the Baptist. When they talk about John the Apostle, they got to let you know it's John the Apostle. Well, since John doesn't call himself John, he wrote it. He just called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. He could just say John, and everybody knows, oh, he means John the Baptist there. But John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. He was six months older than Jesus, but he knew Jesus came from eternity because he knew Jesus is the word become flesh. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace, grace upon grace, Saving grace. You know, we sing amazing grace that we're saved by grace. God saved a wretch like me. But then in that song, it also tells us, and grace will what? Will bring me home. So it's not, God didn't stop pouring grace into your life when he saved you. 
he continues to pour grace into your life. And uh, for the law was given through Moses, verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Okay? So the law was given through Moses. Well, the law reveals to us God, it's, it's a holy thing. The law reveals God's holy standards, God's perfect standards. But then when we try to obey God's laws in our own strength, we fall short. And so the law, the law reveals God's holiness, man's sinfulness, and the gap between the two. The law is a tutor to lead us to Christ, to show us the law cannot save, the law condemns. Only grace through Jesus saves. And so from Moses, we got the law, which just tells us we're sinners, we need Messiah to save us, but it was grace and truth that came to us through Jesus Christ, saving grace, uh, sanctifying grace that helps us move in our walk with the Lord and grow in Christ, and God's truth, you know, no better way for God to reveal his truth to us than by God becoming one of us. So Jesus could say in John 14, 9, he who has seen me has seen the Father. I, as God the Son, become a man, I perfectly represent God the Father. Hebrews chapter 1 talks about that as well. And so Jesus came full of grace and truth, and then Jesus perfectly reveals God to man. Verse 18, no one has seen God at any time uh, the only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father, he has declared him. So we've never seen the invisible God, but the invisible God, the second person of the Trinity, became a visible man. And he has declared him and revealed himself to us so Jesus could say, Jesus could not only say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the father but through me. Uh, he could also say uh, that he who has seen me has seen the Father, okay? Now, there are some ancient texts, ancient manuscripts that say God the only begotten. So that if that would be the true reading, it was no one has seen God at, at any time, but God the only Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. That's why Jesus is called Colossians 1.15, the image of the invisible God, okay? The image of the invisible God. And uh, so the theological explanation is that Jesus is eternal. He is the creator. He existed with the Father, and he's equally God with the Father, as is the Holy Spirit. The world did not recognize its creator. He was born in a manger. His own people, the Jews, rejected him, rejected their Messiah despite all the prophecies. But those who receive Jesus become God's children. And I'm hoping that each and every one of us, if we didn't walk into this place having received Jesus and trusting in him for salvation, I'm hoping we'll leave this building today. Trust in Jesus that you'll say, you know, this Christmas... I not only got gifts from men, but I accepted the gift that God gave to me 2,000 years ago when he gave me his son. 
Those who receive Jesus become God's children. And so Christmas is God the Son becoming a man. The Word became flesh. Jesus perfectly reveals the Father to us. So the proper response to Christmas should be like the shepherds. Welcome the coming of Christ. Accept Christ through faith and proclaim him throughout the world. You know, Jesus makes all things new. He didn't come here so you could die in your sin. We could have done that on our own. Okay, the Father didn't send his Son into the world to condemn the world. We already condemned ourselves. He sent his Son into the world to save us. And uh, so if you trust in Jesus, who makes all things new, then you're a new creation in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. 2 Corinthians 5.15, that, you know, Jesus died and rose from the dead on our behalf. The least we can do now is to live for him. Are you trusting in Jesus for salvation? And are you living for him? And I just want to close with one verse, Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9. Colossians 2 and verse 9. Paul's talking about how we're complete in Christ. We don't need, you know, I'll be honest, we don't need to pray to Mary and the saints. Uh, we don't need Freudian psychology to walk before the Lord and stuff like that. Every once in a while, man stumbles on the truth. We don't need our own good works to help Jesus save us. We're complete in Christ. We need to trust in him alone. We should not be deceived by the false anti-Christian philosophies or traditions of men. We should just trust in Jesus alone. We're complete in him. He is the head over all principality and power. Why should we just trust in him? For, because for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And one translation reads, Colossians 2.9, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So when Mary could look in the face of her baby Jesus. She was looking into the face of God. Um, God told us to not worship images. Don't bow before, you know, images of stone, the false gods, the false idols. But I think one of the reasons why God told us it was because he knew that uh, one day there'd be an image that we could bow before. Because the word became flesh. And Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And we can bow before that image. Not a statue of Jesus. But when you see Jesus face to face, you bow before him. Jesus still has his body right now. He is forever human. Even though he's forever God as well. And the day will come we'll be able to see the holes in his hands, the holes in his feet. And we'll know that that Christmas babe grew up to be a strong young Jewish man who was someday brutalized, battered and beaten, nailed to a cross of wood so that we could receive 
eternal life and become children of God. I don't know how today's going to be. I don't know how tomorrow your Christmas is going to be. I don't know how the rest of your week is going to be. I don't even know how the rest of your life is going to be. But even if things get tough, rejoice. The word became flesh. Come. Let us adore him. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, in Jesus' precious name, I pray that... uh,